Welcome to episode 134. Today, I'm talking with Gretchen Rubin about how to be happier for the holidays. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I have an interview with New York Times bestselling author Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen is the author of amazing books such as The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, Happier at Home, and she's currently celebrating the 10-year anniversary of her book, The Happiness Project. She also has a top-ranked podcast called Happier, which she does with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. I've been enjoying Gretchen's work for quite some time, and I'm thrilled to be able to bring you an interview with her. In today's chat, Gretchen and I are talking about the holidays and what happiness around the holidays looks like. The holidays can be a time of busyness where we can be pulled in many different directions with a list of obligations a mile long. I would call Gretchen the queen of practical tools and strategies, and she's bringing those today. So if you're looking for some great solutions on simplifying and getting happier this holiday season, definitely take a listen to this episode. Before we get into today's episode, here's a quick word from the sponsor. Unless you're new to the podcast, you've probably heard me sing the praises of PrepDish. PrepDish is a meal planning service, and I'm always excited to find podcast sponsors that I truly believe and support and use myself. And PrepDish has been such an essential tool in simplifying the cooking and meal prep in our home. We've been using PrepDish for about four months. And while I was previously doubtful that this sort of service would ever work for me, It truly does. And here's how it works. They don't send you food or anything like that. They send you a PDF every week. And on that PDF, there's three parts. There's a list of the recipes and the ingredients, a prep day description, and a meal day description. So usually on about Thursday, I order my groceries online. So I sit down with a list of ingredients. I put those into my shopping cart and order them through my local grocery store delivery service. And then over the weekend, my husband and I worked together to do the prep day. The prep day option for the standard option takes about an hour and a half. They also have a quick option that's faster. So on prep day, we make all the marinades, all the sauces. We do all the chopping. That way, when it comes time to actually serve the dish on the day of the meal, I only have to do maybe 10 minutes worth of work. The whole process is simple and seamless, and it has made our weekdays so much easier and so much lighter. PrepDish is giving the Simple Families audience two weeks free, so try it. Let me know how it goes. I want to know if you love it as much as I do. You can go to PrepDish.com forward slash families, and that's all lowercase. And there you can get your two weeks of free meal planning. Again, that's PrepDish.com forward slash families. If you have questions or comments, you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 134, and you can leave those there. You'll also find links to learn more about Gretchen and her work as well. Hi, Gretchen. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to be talking to you. (laughs) Well, we are going to talk a little bit about happier for the holidays. The holidays is a time of the year that I find there are so many expectations and obligations and tradition and excitement that go into it. And it truly is supposed to be the happiest time of the year, but it, it doesn't always feel that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'd love if we could just start off, if you could tell me a little bit about what you do for the holiday season and what are some mm. of the things that bring your family joy? Yeah, well, we're lucky in my family because in my family growing up and to this day, Christmas is a huge thing. My mother has these amazing Christmas decorations. She has like three trees and she and my father, you know, like they get all decorated. I married somebody Jewish. And so it's like his family doesn't care about Christmas. So they get Thanksgiving. 
And they live, they live, we live right around the corner from them. And I mean, right around the corner. So in a way, it's great because we don't have to travel for Thanksgiving because that can be really tough. We have that with Jamie's family. And then with my family, we go for a week in Kansas City. And then every other year, my sister comes because half of the year she spends with um, her husband's family because they do celebrate Christmas. So we do a lot of decorating in our house too, but I live in in New York City in an apartment and it was a huge relief for me to just say like, you know what? We go to Kansas City, they have a full on, they have more than one full on trees there. We're just doing tabletop trees. And then we make kind of gingerbread houses out of graham crackers every year. So we really love to celebrate, but there's aspects of it that do make it easier uh, logistically. Um, you, You travel for the actual week of Christmas. We travel for the week. Yeah. The day my daughters finish school, the next day, then we'll go there and then we go through for a week. Yeah. Which is so oh. fun. It's tons of fun. Kansas City is really fun at Christmas time. I, you know what? I haven't been to Kansas City. My husband went mm. last year and he raved about it. He had such a good trip. He really loved it there. It's a great city. Yeah. yeah I'm going to have to get there myself. So thinking about this, it's interesting that you leave for the week of Christmas. And I find that I talk with a lot of families who feel like they really want to set up traditions in their own home. Is that something Mm -hmm. that you've ever thought about? Or is it just, do you sort of follow what feels good and what feels right for you? Well, this is a good example of how to be flexible, I think. Like the way I had to give up the tree that had been so important in my own childhood. There was definitely a time, and my my parents have talked about it, where in their family, they decided we want to have Christmas in our house. And if the grandparents want to come, both my sets of grandparents are from North Platte, Nebraska, uh, because my parents met in, you know, when they were young, you can come to us, but we're going to stay home for Christmas. Santa comes to our house. We're going to have a Christmas tree, the presents, everything like that. So that's what worked for my parents. And I think I always thought that would be true for me. But in a way, like I just, I love Kansas City tradition. I liked being, going to my house. I liked making the trip and, uh, and so did my family. And so I think for a lot of people, it really makes, especially when you have young children, it really makes sense to stay put and let like grandparents or whomever come to you. And that's part of why I have such strong traditions in my mind with my own childhood home. But then they're so strong that I want to do them as an adult. So that's what works for us. My children also are very far apart in age. They're six years apart. So I didn't travel. I never had more than one really little kid to travel with, you know, and I think that also made it easier. I think if you've got like two, three kids, maybe under the age of five or six, that starts being like parent Olympics or like you're cramming the car with everything you need. It starts being a real drag. And for us, just logistically, this ended up being just like the way it went. Yeah. And it's worked out for you year after year. Yeah, and part of it was my husband didn't have his own associations with Christmas. And so I think part of it is if it's going to be your Christmas or my Christmas, then maybe it's like, well, let's make our new Christmas. But Jamie is like, well, I don't have Christmas, so your Christmas is good for me. And my parents are like, excellent. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> we get every Christmas. Right. And yeah, you know, I think we have sort of leaned in both directions. Both of our families are out of state. We live in Westchester, so just north of yeah. the city. And my husband's family is in the D.C. area and my family's in the Cleveland area. And both of them have very much established the traditions that they want to be home for the holidays. Oh. We also want to be home for the holidays. Uh. But for us, it's more about being a little bit lazy and not wanting to deal with the travel part. So, so we have stayed home for the holidays the past couple of years, but I find that the holidays feel a little bit lonely like that mm. without the extended mm. family. So we're trying to find this balance and what's the right fit for our family and is that going to look the same every year? Yeah. I mean, I think people have started to do really like out of the box solutions and like you can get into rotations and taking turns and 
I heard of a family. I thought this was so brilliant. They they celebrated something called Thanksmas. So they were a really, really big family. I think there were eight siblings or something like that. So they were very rarely all together. And there was no way you could like take turns in any way that would make sense. And so they picked a date between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And this was their family holiday. And so that everybody would travel home to their parents' home and be there for Thanksmas. And then other holidays you would spend with your spouse's family or do whatever you wanted. And so that was great because then spouses got their time for, because a lot of times it's like, you know, it's like his side, her side things or her side, her side, his side, his side. But you've got two people whose families want, or in like a divorce, you can have like four families on one, you know, it can get really complicated. So they were just like, okay, let's just get out of that. We'll make our own holiday. And then, and then we're not traveling at a busy time and we can plan ahead and we all get to be together, which that, that has special power for them because they wanted to be together as a group. And I was like, that's a great idea. If it's, if what, figure out what works for you. What do you want? Or maybe you pick a different, maybe 4th of July is your big family holiday where everybody comes together. And so Christmas is one thing. It's not what, you know, it's, it's kind of a more hangout holiday. And then 4th of July is your big, like, let's make a, an adventure to get, all get together. I think the bottom line, just having thought about this quite a bit, is that it's very easy, especially when you're starting out, to just kind of be very reactive and kind of do that. But if you do something like two or three times in a row, I don't know, but in my experience, like it quickly becomes like a family tradition and if break it, it's like a whole big discussion. I think it's good to like think, what do we want? What does this look for? Or like, oh, or if we're in a new stage of life, how does this change? And really think it through and have kind of a philosophy of what you're doing rather than just kind of like every year sort of making it up as you go along. Absolutely. And I think that the holidays is this really interesting time to start thinking about the four tendencies as you described. Mm. And I'd love for you to share more about the inner and outer expectations because I think that this can be a time where those inner and outer expectations can really be difficult to distinguish and to lean in one way or the other. Absolutely. So the four tendencies is a personality framework that I came up with. It looks at a very narrow aspect of human nature, but a very significant aspect, which is how do you respond to expectations, which sounds really boring, but it's actually really, really juicy and important. So expectations, we all face inner out, we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations, which is like a work deadline and inner expectations, which is like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. And depending on how you respond, you're either an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. And there is a quiz on my site. If you go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com, it'll take you to this like quick, free quiz that like, I don't know, 1.7 million people have taken. Um, but often people know what they are without taking the quiz just from the description I'll give. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline and they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to do what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. They always want to know why. So they're making everything an inner expectation. If something makes sense to them, they'll do it, no problem. If it doesn't, they will push back. Then, I was just, I, this is hilarious to me because I'm just thinking about all the holiday-related things related yeah. to the tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> Obligers readily meet outer expectations. They struggle to meet inner expectations. So this is someone who, like a friend of mine who said, oh, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. Why can't I go running now? Well, it's because when you had a team and a coach expecting you to show up, you would never let them down. But when you're trying to go running on your own, you struggle. And then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. Uh, they want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. 
And another thing about rebels that often comes up around the holidays is they don't like to be bound by a schedule. They don't like to commit to advance. Like, I don't know if I'm going to go want to eat Mexican food at 5 p.m. because who knows what I'm going to feel like eating tomorrow. And I don't know if I'm going to be hungry at 5. And I don't even like the idea that somebody's expecting me to show up at that time. This can come up. Complicated family planning because some people want to make a schedule and some people don't want to make a schedule. And so that's rebels. Rebels resist outer and inner expectations alike. You see a lot of the differences in perspectives playing out around the holidays with the tendencies. Yeah. And I've taken the quiz and the quiz told me that I'm a questioner, but I am still questioning it. So Okay. As one does as a questioner. Yeah. Keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I can't quite wrap my head around the fact that maybe I am a questioner, but I think the continuing questioning of that really gives me my answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one way like a questioner might show up, like, let's say during the holidays is let's say people are like, okay, we're always, we're going to go to, we're going to play touch football on Thanksgiving afternoon at this time. And the the questioner people like, why at that time? It's like, well, we've always done it at that time. And the questioner's like, but it doesn't really make sense. We should really do it at this time. And everybody's like, why are you making such a big deal? Let's just do it at the time we always do. And they're like, the fact that we've done it at a time we've always done it, that doesn't make any sense. We should do what makes sense for us. They don't want to do anything that they consider to be arbitrary. And so they often, or like somebody will say like, oh, I made a reservation at an Italian restaurant. And they'd be like, well, why Italian? And they just mean like literally why Italian? But then it can make people feel defensive. Like, why are you questioning my decisions? When they literally are just like, well, I want to know why you picked that restaurant. I'm just wondering why. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, I don't so mean anything bad, but I just want to know why. And then yeah. like upholders, one way upholders show up is upholders can seem cold. Now you're a questioner. I'm an upholder. Um, Because an upholder would be like, like, I don't eat carbs. Um, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat flour. I don't eat starchy vegetables. And, you know, in a holiday, it's like, oh, I made this beautiful dessert. Won't you have a piece? No, I won't because I don't eat sugar. Oh, come on. I baked it specially for the the holiday. I don't eat sugar. It's like, oh, it's one day a year. You can't have one piece. No, I don't eat sugar. Because to me, that inner expectation is just as important as your outer expectation that everybody's going to eat your dessert. And it's like, I'm just like, well, I got to meet my inner expectation. I'm sorry if it kind of hurts your feelings, but like, you know, what are you going to do? I have, like, I don't eat sugar. And that can seem cold to other tendencies because they're like, well, if it's important to me, I don't understand why you're not respecting that. Or like, oh, we have company staying at our house. And I'm like, well, I'm training for the marathon. So I got to go for a 15 mile run. I am not, I personally, Gretchen, do not train for marathons, by the way. But I know many upholders where they're like, I have to go for a run. And, And people are like, but your parents are here from out of town. How can you go for a three-hour run? It's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm, just, I'm training for the marathon. I have to do it. To an upholder, that seems reasonable. But to the right. other tendencies, that can seem cold. Yeah, I'm married to an upholder. Who oh, see, that's so interesting. I'm, a, I'm an upholder married to a questioner, and you're the right. Yeah. The so opposite. my husband did um, an Ironman a few years ago. There you I go. That. I mean, it was like Sunday morning, and I'm like, "What do you mean you're going to go for like a hundred mile bike ride? Are you kidding me?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and I, it's funny actually. When I was reading the Four Tendencies, there you had written an example that really resonated with me. On that same note of him being an upholder, when I was in labor with my first child, he was driving me to the hospital and I was like <laughs> in the end stages of labor. It was 3 a.m. There was not another car on the highway and an ambulance passed by with its lights on and he pulled over to the side of the road. <laughs> you're like, you're the ambulance. Right. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I'm back here about to have a baby in the backseat of the car and you're pulling over because yep. there's an ambulance passing by. But he, yep. in his mind, he just, there was, there's no alternative. Like the ambulance yep. passes by, you pull over to the side of the road, regardless yes. of the situation. Yeah. And the um, questioner's like, think about the circumstances. Why would you do this? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's why I think it's actually a good combination. I feel like I'm married to a questioner because I think that he helps me remember that 
I should know why I'm doing things. I shouldn't do things just because I expect them of myself or others expect them. But I bet a lot of your listeners have our obligers because obliger is the biggest tendency that you're either, you either are an obliger, many obligers in your life for both men and women. It's the biggest tendency. And one of the things that's hard for an obliger is they feel the weight of outer expectations so strongly and it's hard for inner expectations to kind of push back. And so if your parents are like, oh, but we really, really want you to come, uh, why can't you? And you're sort of like, well, we don't really feel like getting up at 4 a.m. and driving for five hours on Christmas morning. It, like that feels very hard. But one of the things that obligers can do that many obligers have said works is just remind yourself that to say yes to someone sometimes you have to say no to someone else. And so you could say, hey, you know what? We've talked about it as a family and we really feel like it's taking a lot of the fun out of Christmas to spend so much time on the road. So I'm really hard, sorry that I have to say no, but remind yourself you're saying yes to your family. You know, or like, or you could say, I want to be, I, you know, you want to have a, your duty to be a role model of like certain kinds of behavior. So if somebody's like, oh, well, we want you to, you know, have another drink, have another drink. A lot of times people, like with all the best intentions of just seeing like very festive, really press people to eat and drink things during the holiday, even when the people are trying to kind of uh, maybe cut back or hold back or limit themselves. And so you just, you could say to yourself, well, you know, I'm really sorry that I have to say in your own mind, think, well, I have to say no to you so that I can say yes to my, or like maybe to my future self. Right now I feel like saying yes, but my future self is going to feel really disappointed if, if I wake up in the morning or I come to the, the end of the holiday season and I realize that I haven't stuck to my guns and done things the way I want. Um, right. So I for think an obliger, holiday- it's about outer accountability. Right. The holidays, I think, can be really hard for obligers. Yes. They're pulled in a lot of different directions. And you're right. I definitely think that is the highest percentage of listeners listening from in the whole world. Yeah. 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 And and, and the thing they should remember is what you always need is outer accountability. That's how obligers meet inner expectations is through outer accountability. So think about creating structures of outer accountability. I mean, you might even do something like, let's say, let's say your in-laws always want you to stay for like six hours and you want, and you're, you're like, you know, after the first two hours, everybody just starts to fight. It's not good. So maybe you make, you make a date to see somebody else so that you can say like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, but we promised this other family that we were going to stop by their open house at 8, 8 p.m. So we got to leave now. You know, it's like, well, these other people are going to be disappointed if we don't show up. So we have to say no to you. We, we've got this outer accountability. It's not like us just looking at our watch and being like, oh, we need to leave. And they're saying, no, 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 stay. And then you're being like, okay. You know, it's like, oh, we have this other thing we have to do. Always to think about what are forms of outer accountability. Yes, absolutely. Now, your book, The Happiness Project, which was your first book on happiness, is that correct? Yep. yep. So that you're coming, did you just hit your 10-year anniversary or is that coming up? I, yeah, this is the 10th anniversary of The Happiness Project. Unbelievable. Yes. That's so exciting. So this book really resonated with me because my kids are young. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and um, an almost five-year-old son. So your mm. kids, were they one and seven when you wrote the book? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. And now they're, I guess, 10 years later, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we know how they, no, so one was nine and one was uh, three. Got it. So yeah, I just thinking about the happiness project and I loved it because it's very tangible. It's very practical. Mm. And for people, especially simple families audience members who are who are listening and they're interested in finding more tangible, actionable items to mm-hmm. find happiness in their lives, I think that this book is full of those for sure. And do you feel like your view on happiness has changed in the past 10 years as your kids have grown and as you have moved through this process and researched and learned more? 
I don't think it's changed, but I think I understand it even more clearly. Like the more I think about certain things, the more true they are. For instance, like one of the things that became clear to me as I was writing the happiness project is like, there's no one size fits all happiness project. I can't write one that would work for everyone because everyone's different. Everyone has different interests, different values, different temperament, different circumstances. And so part of the fun of it is we each have to do a happiness project for ourselves. We each have to kind of identify the aims and then think of the concrete manageable things that would help us achieve whatever it would be that would make us happier or healthier or more productive or more creative or whatever we want. But as time's gone by, the more and more I realize, like in most respects, people are pretty much alike, but in the ways that they're different, it really matters. And it really matters to know. Maybe you're a morning person, but you're married to a night person. Maybe you're a simplicity lover, but you're married to an abundance lover. Maybe you're a finisher, but your coworker is an opener. Like just realizing that the things that make sense to each of us individually doesn't mean that other people see the world in the same way. This sounds perfectly obvious and I like intellectually believed it, but it's like, as I've gotten further and further and further into my study of human nature, I just realized how deep it goes. Like how things that I would never have thought that people could see differently from me, or I just wouldn't even have thought of it as something to consider, I realize, oh, you know, people just really come at this in a different way. So that's something where I feel like, yeah, I got that with the Happiness Project, but now I really understand it so much more deeply. And I believe that it's so much more significant to understand. Yeah. And that individual nature is so important to consider because as I was listening to that, I love audiobooks. So I was listening to yeah. the Happiness Project. I was thinking about how so many of the things that you tried, I just know won't work for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Good. Like the, yeah. You told a story about how you planned and executed this beautiful celebration for your mother-in-law's birthday. Mm-hmm. And that sounds so lovely, but at the stage in my life that I'm at right now, the idea of planning mm-hmm. something like that with two young kids mm-hmm. sounds completely overwhelming mm-hmm. and I think I would get lost in the process. And yeah. I think that when we try to execute things that aren't going to serve us just because they sound good, like planning this elaborate birthday party or whatever it is, if it's not something that brings us joy and it's something that we're going to actually dread the process of, there's, is there really value in it? And I think we have to constantly be questioning just because that brought happiness to Gretchen does not, bring, does not mean that's going to bring happiness to me, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that's been fun for me now that the Happiness Project has been out for 10 years is a lot of times people are like, well, I picked and chose. Like certain things like resonate with me. I'm like, I'm going to do that starting tomorrow. And then other things are like, oh, hand wave. Like, yeah, there's no way. So a lot of it and a lot of everything that I've done since, like I have this podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin that I do with my sister. Like a lot of it is just throwing out tons of ideas so that people can pick and choose because you're absolutely right certain things aren't going to work. Or also like certain times you're just not in that season of life. Like you're not in the season of life to plan a big birthday party. Like, but that doesn't mean that in 15 years you might not enjoy it. And it's, and I think that's another thing I've learned is like, you don't have to do everything right now. You know, like I would love to go to evening lectures. I live in New York city. Think of all the fascinating people I could hear. I'm not in that stage of life. I've got an eighth grader, you know, like, and I travel a lot for work. I need to be home when I can be home just to be like hanging out and like listening to her issues, you know, this (laughs) is not the time to go to, but another time will come when that, or, or, you know, I know people who did that in their twenties. I wish I had done it in my twenties. I didn't, but now I can do it when I get a different stage of life. And so I think that's right. And again, with the happiness project, it wasn't I, and the idea of it wasn't like, oh, I'm telling you what you should do. It's more like by seeing what I do and why I did what I did that made sense for me, that can help prompt 
ideas for you. Like one thing that I talk about in the book as well is holiday breakfast, which is do something really little on a holiday, like die, if for Valentine's Day, you like dye the milk pink, you could dye the peanut butter, like my kids have peanut butter on toast, the peanut butter pink, you could cut the toast into heart shapes, you could have, you know, Valentine's Day themed plates. It only takes like 10 minutes the night before, but then it's like really big bang for your buck. Like you might be like, okay, that I can do. Holiday breakfast on St. Patrick's Day, dye the milk green. I can do that. You know, milestone birthday party for an adult. No, not doing that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think it's so powerful to think about our life in seasons and in stages. I think about, I'd love to garden and I'd love to grow my own food. And I've tried now for two years and I've been an epic failure for both years. And it's just, and I've come to the realization that this is just not the stage of life. I love the idea of it. I have a beautiful garden in my backyard, but next year we're throwing some wildflower seeds in and we're just going to let it go because it's not in my bandwidth right now. And for the fact that I can't seem to execute it and I can't seem to pull it off means that it's not really where my interests lie right now either. But it doesn't mean that I won't 10 years from now. Right. Right. Life is long. And then it's something to look forward to. You're like, oh, wow. You know, when my kids are eight and what, like 11 or whatever, that could be a super fun, like family thing that we do together, but like not now. My sister's like got a big job being a showrunner in Los Angeles in Hollywood. And uh, she's got a show that's coming out for ABC. And so she's just working all the time. I mean, it's just a super, super demanding job. And she talks about the season of sacrifice, which is, you know, there's certain times when you're like, you know what, I'm not going to be able to go to the second grade play because I just can't. And this is the season of sacrifice and it's not forever. But there are certain things that I just can't do that I would ordinarily choose to do. And she said that's helpful because then she knows, like, those are the things that I really want to prioritize when I'm not in this season. Because it's like, don't just not, like, really make an effort to do those things when you can, because sometimes you can't. And so I think, some, and like, and just think, like you say, it's a season. It's not forever. It's like, it's this time. And I also think it helps to like appreciate things about the time that you don't like. Like I remember, so I live in, I live in New York city and there's no place to put a stroller. I mean, it's just right there by your front door for like years. And I'm a very kind of orderly person and it just bugged me. There's no place to put it. I can't, we don't have enough closet. There's just this stroller in the middle of everything all the time. And it bugged me. And I was like, oh, I just can't wait to get rid of that stroller. Now, of course, what do I now look back with, with nostalgia? And I'm like, oh, remember those days when we had a stroller in the front hall? And I miss it. You know, I'm like, why didn't I take a picture of the stroller in the front hall? Like, what a thing that was. So I think part of it is also remembering, like, the things that drive you crazy are often the things that you remember the most fondly. I I did this little video um, called uh, The Days Are Long, But The Years Are Short which is all about this bus ride that I had to take my daughter on to take her to nursery school. And of everything that I've ever written, I think that phrase, the days are long, but the years are short, is the thing that resonates most with people. And that video is the thing that's like one minute long. It's just like text is the thing that that people most often will write to me about. Because I think it is for parents. You think, gosh, getting from morning to night feels like an impossible task. And then where's kindergarten? It's just over in a flash. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, so the, the, one of the big appeals of the happiness project to me is this, that you spent a year seeking happiness and mm-hmm. you went out finding things that could, or maybe that could or could not bring you happiness, whatever the result mm-hmm. was for each one. But I think that sometimes, a lot of times we don't seek happiness. I mean, get ourselves into these phases where we're unhappy and we actually are surrounded by other unhappy people. And something that I hear quite often, I'm a part of a lot of Facebook groups and I run a large Facebook group of women, of mothers of young children. And 
I see women a lot of times complaining about their spouses and there's sort of this, you wouldn't believe what my husband did. And then other women saying, you know, you have every right to be angry or you have every right to be upset. And I think to myself, like, what if we had every right to be happy? What if we changed that mindset and we deserve to be happy instead of deserving to be angry and seeking out that happiness instead of seeking out that commiseration from others around the negative things that happen in our life. And it's just, it seems to me that society so easily embraces negativity over positivity and it can be hard to find that community. Do you find that? Well, there's definitely negativity bias. That's just part of human nature. And that's why with news organization, if it bleeds, it leads. And it's like why if you have a work evaluation, you remember the criticism much better than the the praise. It's just, it's sort of for evolutionary reasons, we will just pay more attention to the negative things. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think a lot of people just never think about happiness. I certainly never did until I started my happiness project. It just didn't, I just didn't think about it. I didn't think like, how could I be happier? What are some of the things that I could do in my life that would boost my happiness? I just, I was just sort of managing my to-do list. I just wasn't thinking in those terms. And what I found, and I think is true of a lot of people, is once you start thinking about like, what can I do to be happier? I would be happier if I saw my friends more regularly. What could I do to see my friends more regularly? Well, I could start a book group. Okay, it's like, that's not that hard, but you have to have the thought to do it. You have to take, have that moment of reflection and to think about what it is that could make you happier. And, you know, speaking of like resentment against spouses, one of the things that I find really helpful with resentment against spouse is to make the opposite argument. So it turns out with people, we are really, really good at making arguments. We're all like these amazing advocates. And whenever we try to argue for something, we're really, really good at amassing evidence of it. But that can be like, oh, my husband never helps, right? And then immediately your mind is filling in all the examples that you would have at your fingertips, and then you work yourself into a rage. But then, the thing, so what you do is you flip that on its head and say, my husband always helps. And then immediately, it's almost uncanny. Your mind will start to fill in all the examples. Like I had this thing with my husband, like Jamie never helps us get ready for for traveling. You know, like we're going on a big family trip. He never helps. And then I was like, okay, no, Jamie does always help. And then I was like, oh my gosh, look at all the things he did that I don't do. And I forget about it because I'm like, I'm not worried about making the reservations. I'm not worried about, you know what I mean? It's like you can make the opposite argument. But as you say, like, you have to think about being positive. You can't just wait for it to sort of land on you. You kind of have to direct your mind in that way because otherwise a negativity bias and just sort of like general, general human nature will lead you to think about the negative. It's like a lot of it is just like taking charge of the way that you think and the way that you act instead of being responsive and reactive all the time, which is very hard to do. It is. It definitely doesn't come naturally to most no. humans. I think it has no, to. No, I think, natural. but the more you realize, it's kind of like with your cell phone. Like you can have all the default settings and then you can complain all you want when your phone is vibrating all the time and sending you notifications and you're addicted to, you know, or you can be like, you know what? I'm going to turn off my notifications and I'm going to delete this app on my phone and only look at it at desktop. And I'm going to put my phone on a high shelf for three hours every night so that I spend time with my family without being distracted by my phone. You are the boss of what you're doing. And so I think a lot of it is not to fall into these default patterns, but to think like, how could I shape this so that I would have a happier life? Right. And one of the quotes that I highlighted that I loved in the Happiness Project was, I couldn't look outside of myself for happiness. The Mm -hmm. secret was under my own roof. And that I think is really important for us to consider not only as individuals, but as parents, because I think a lot of times we can get caught up in this idea 
that we can give happiness to our kids. Yes. Well, I write about this a lot. After I wrote The Happiness Project, I wrote a book called Happier at Home, which really focuses on the idea of home. Because I think for a lot of people, that really is the center of happiness. You know, it's like, if you're not happy at home, it's hard to be happy. So I looked at this a lot. And the thing is, you really can't make someone else happy. Now, it is true that happier people tend to make other people happier. So you can kind of lift people with your happiness. And you can definitely set environments up, which will help people to become happier but you cannot make someone happy. And I hear about this a lot because people have different sort of ranges of happiness, just inborn. You know, some people are tiggers, some people are eeyores. We sort of see that. And what I hear about is from a lot of parents who are like, they're a tigger, right? Like they're probably like seven to 10 on the happiness scale. They're just one of these people naturally born happy. That's great. And then they got a kid who's like four to seven on the happiness scale. They're just at a different place. Now, absolutely, I think every all of us can do things to push ourselves up to the top of our range or to press ourselves down to the bottom of our range. But it's also true that people are just kind of have different settings of just kind of their demeanor. And you cannot bully and nag and nudge your little seven into being a 10 or, you know, your six into being a nine. And I think sometimes people just, they like, they think that they can just make someone be happy or make right. someone look more cheerful or someone be more like have a better sense of humor. It's like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. So I have to tell you that I actually, as a child, my nickname was Eeyore. It was? Oh. <laughs> That's what my mom called me. Yeah. Why? And I think because I just whined and like, it's just, it's kind of grumpy, but you know, it's one of those things like I feel like in the past decade or two decades, like I've really shifted from a mindset of negativity to positivity. And that is something that I had to choose for myself. I couldn't look to anyone around me to make that shift. And I had to seek out that happiness for myself. And that's something that I feel very passionately about for my kids. And taking this sort of, this idea to gift giving is something that I'd love to pick your brain on because I think when we give gifts, it's a lot of it is for our own happiness. Do you agree with that? Like we love to see that look on the child's face or on the individual's face when they open the gift. Sure. I think that's a very good, I mean, in a way it's selfish and in a way it's selfless. You can see it both ways. Right. And I, when I'm gifting to my own kids, because I'm really careful, we don't have a lot of toys and I'm really careful about the items that I'm giving to my kids. I really try not to strive for that because I find that, and when it comes, especially if you're talking about toys, when kids get really excited about a toy that they're opening up for a gift, it's often a toy that I call front-loaded. So like all the happiness is Mm -hmm. right up front, right when you open Mm -hmm. it, it lasts about five seconds and they put it aside and they never touch it again. Mm. Uh, And then the toys that are what I call back-loaded, like a really great set of blocks. Most kids are not excited to open up a really great set of blocks, but those are the toys that are going to stick around and they're going to use in a million different ways over the years. And those are the toys that are really going to bring the most value and the most happiness over time. Mm. And as parents, and I think grandparents as well, we can really get caught up in Mm -hmm. those front-loaded gifts and that excitement and joy on children's faces when they open them. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a, a story that goes even further than that on that. Why are you really giving the gift that you're giving? So a friend of mine's niece had like a little, you know, how, like sometimes like at a dime store or whatever, you can get like a little tiny dollhouse that has like six things. that's just like little in plastic. It's like a travel dollhouse or something like that. So this girl had gotten a dollhouse like that and she loved it and she played with it all the time. So my friend's parents, who were the grandparents of this little girl, were like, oh, clearly she wants a dollhouse. So they ran out, bought her like this elaborate Victorian dollhouse and all the furniture. They picked it out themselves and gave it to her, like a fully furnished, full on dollhouse, which you think would be like a dream come true. But it's like, that's not fun. 
they had the fun. They picked yeah. out all the little things. They picked out the little tiny like flowers for the centerpiece of the little tiny dining room. I mean, my daughter had dollhouses. And I mean, it was years and years and years and years of like, oh, I'm going to buy, I'm going to get a bathtub for Christmas. You know, it was like such a big deal to add every little thing. And then part of it, you had to kind of make up the stuff that wasn't there and you had to work with it and everything. And it was like, they had all the fun. And then there was no fun left for her. Right. But their intentions were in the best of places. Their their intentions were the best, but I think you're right. It's like, it's a more complicated thing than it seems. Now, to your point, like, I think I remember I gave my nephew like this really elaborate Lego set and he was ecstatic. And then he went on to build it because that is something where it's no fun unless you're actually building it. It's not like just something that you look at, you open it and you're like, awesome. And then you put it aside. But I think it's a really good thing to think about. And then also, I think a lot of times what happens is like a kid will go through a phase, like really into dinosaurs. And then like somebody who doesn't see the child often is just like, oh, here's something that's dinosaur related. I'll buy it as a gift. And you're like, okay, that's for a my kid is no longer interested in dinosaurs and that is for like a kid who's two years younger. Like just the fact that there's a dinosaur on it does not mean that it's a good gift. I think so. Or this is sort of poignant. It's when a child is like, oh, I like to draw pictures. And then the parent's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to buy you every art supply in the world. And it's like, you know, or like a drum set. And you're like, this kid had like a fleeting interest and now it's drowning in all of the kind of educational passion supporting stuff. Somebody said to me, you should always be like, if they're begging you for these things over a long time, that's when you like get them the ukulele. You don't just like go out and buy a ukulele. And I thought that was good advice. Yes, absolutely. Wait for them to really, really, really want something like that. Right. And I think that it's easy to understand these things. It's also difficult to articulate these things to the gift givers in our lives. And I get questions. I would say like the most common question that I get from parents is, how do we stop the grandparents from giving so many gifts? And yeah. it's not simple. And I think in my mind, I feel like, and, and in my house, because I'm a questioner, I have an easy time passing on things that we don't use because I question what's mm-hmm. the value in my home of this item right. and what's right. the cost of this item in my home. And if it's costing me more than it's valuing, more value than it has, then it's fairly easy for me to let go. I think that obligers, on the other hand, are going to be mm-hmm. have a harder time letting go of those gifts. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, you can do things like saying like, oh, this is a wonderful gift, but you, t- you like, we're going to keep it at your house. So like, you can get this like giant thing, but it's going to be in your house, not our house. That sometimes works. For some grandparents, like they, they really don't want to do things like, like donate to a college fund instead, even though you would so much prefer that and love that and be so grateful. Like they want the present and the seeing the gift unwrapped. One thing that's helpful to remember is, and this is something that I really learned from Marie Kondo in her book about a gift has value in the gesture. If someone is giving a gift, that is a gesture of love. That gesture is complete the moment that the gift is given and received. So you can say like, well, thank you, like weird soldier doll that my son doesn't want. You have completed your mission in my house. Thank you so much because we see how much your grandparents love their grandson and they want, they want to give him anything he could possibly want. That has been completed. The gift has served its function. And now we can go live with a child who will enjoy it more for whom it would be like a big deal. But like to see that the gift has already been used up because sometimes I think people are like, well, it's wasteful because we should use it up or we like have, if we have it in our house for two years, then we can leave, we can let it go. But it's like, it's already served its mission by being a physical expression of 
consideration and love. Yes. And I love that idea as well. I think that thinking about it in that terms and thinking about it as it's not going to stay in our lives forever. It's either going to exit today or 10 years from now. (laughs) And if it's bringing value to us for the next 10 years, then great. But if it's just getting kicked around and stepped on for 10 years, then why not today? Yeah. Well, and a lot of grandparents, it's like they're also, if you give them direction, they'll do a better job. I mean, you know, to say something like, oh, he doesn't really need anything. It's like, well, I'm going to get something. But if you're like, oh, here's a wish list, I think that's great. Because a lot of times with a wish list, like even if it's something like here's a pad of construction paper, and that's a pretty modest gift. That's a gift that comes in handy. I mean, you can use that as a household. Every household needs construction paper, like for this, that, or the other thing. And it's like if it's on a wish list and they're like, I got five things. You know, if you can direct it to things that you like or, oh, it would be fun to have like a fun, whimsical alarm clock. It's like, okay, that's fun to go out and buy, but it's a modest gift and it's not a big deal. You know, yeah, you could probably use an alarm clock. So I think part of it is directing people as well. Right. And Um, considering their, what type of gifts they enjoy giving. My mom, my mom loved the quantity. It was all about quantity growing up. I mean, she'd give us like 20 gifts at Christmas. So for last year for the holidays, I told her, like, you know what my daughter would really like would be an art set or an art cart. So she bought yeah. like, she bought no glitter. There's no glitter allowed, but like sequins yeah. and yes. glue and yes. pom-pom balls and just yes. made a box full of a lot of different art pieces for her to just cut and glue with. And she absolutely loves it. And my mom loved giving all the stuff. See, that's a great, great example. Like, do people want like lots of little cute things? Do they want like one big kind of splashy thing? Again, like... You can help direct that. It's a lot of work to direct gift giving. It's hard enough to come up with your own gifts that you're going to give. And then somebody else being like, okay, now give me five more ideas. It's hard. But I think it is. But then you feel like it's you're getting what you want. And they're getting what you would want for them. Another thing, though, is My Little Pony is not such a big deal. But when my daughters were little, like My Little Pony was a really big thing. It's reemerging, actually. It's okay. Like, well, all these things. Like troll dolls, all <laughs> yeah. these things, they come back. So a friend of mine who was kind of like a very minimalist, kind of like very elegant, educated person, like she just hated My Little Pony. Like everything about it, she did not like it. And her, of course, her daughter wanted them. And her mother-in-law kept buying My Little Ponies for the grandchild. And my friend was just beside herself with anger and rage and so inconsiderate. She's not respecting my values, all this kind of thing. And then another friend of mine, we were at lunch and my friend, she said, is this really the fight you want to have? And I thought, it's a good point. Right. You've got a long life with your mother-in-law. My Little Pony. Is that what you wanted to end up? Yeah, is that the hill? I mean, and my friend immediately was like, you know what? I can let go of my little pony. Yeah. And it's just like, sometimes it's just like, you know what? This is somebody else's way. It's not my way, but there's a lot of ways to be a loving parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle. And some people also like, they want to like break your rule. You know, like they delight in that. They're like, oh, mom says you can't have this. So what rebels, you? right? Yeah. Mom says you can't <laughs> have candy. Oh, well, I'm going to sneak you a giant Kit Kat or like a Toblerone bar the size of your leg. You know what I mean? Like they get into that. It's like, okay. I mean, all right. You know, there's room for that in life too. I think part of it is always just to remember love and that if it's coming from a place of love, can you have magnanimity? And yeah, it's a nuisance, like all this stuff. And you feel like it's a waste and like this, but it's like, you know. Right. And our intimate relationships are by far the most challenging relationships in our lives. Yes. And, but they're the most important. And so when I had a baby for the first time, I remember thinking, unless I feel like my children are actually in danger or something is actually contrary to my own deepest values, I will let other people do things their way. 
as it relates to my children, meaning like whatever the grandparents serve, the grandparents rules about television, if they go over to a friend's house and they stay up late, I'm like, I don't want to be so, I just want other people to feel like they can be loving in their way. And when I was little, I had a grandmother, she would let us stay up and watch like the midnight movie. She would take us, she would buy us like the worst kind of junk. And it was so fun. <laughs> and we love going through her house. We had a great time. My sister and I have the greatest memories. And we both turned out fine. <laughs> right. like, so I think sometimes people get like, they just get, you can just, when you watch so much the best for your children, but I think sometimes you can just like lighten up a little bit and it just, it just makes everything a lot easier. And I think there's room for a lot. Yeah. If, if there's love, if yes. it's coming from a place of love, not inattentiveness, not, you know, yeah. It's tricky. We try to operate on sort of an 80-20 rule for most things in our house. And 80% of the time we're at home, we're eating at home, we're eating healthy, we're spending time together. It's the four of us. And 20% of the time we're with extended family members or we're out in the city or doing something else. And the rules and the things that we don't eat sugar at home, for instance, but mm -hmm. when we're out of the house, 80% of the time we're at home, that 20% of the time that we're not at home, we eat sugar, we eat ice cream, we indulge. And I think that finding that balance in that what you do at home and within your family unit doesn't have to be your 100% all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, maybe you have no TV at your house, but there's TV when they go to their aunt's house, you know, right. and it's just like, okay, because what you don't want is the dreaded backlash. And the dreaded backlash is we are so hardcore about not eating junk food that the minute your kid is out of your sight, all they do is sit down and eat, you know, fruity pebbles right out of the box, like, you know, <laughs> you know the whole thing. Or they go away to summer camp and then like they're just scavenging candy from every kid or whatever. So yeah, you want for people to just like enjoy it, but like see that there's a place for a lot of different things. Right. So a question that I've gotten about the holidays from a few different audience members this year is how do you handle toxic family members? That is really hard. One thing I think that always helps is before you go into a situation, think to yourself, how do I want to behave? Because a lot of times it's like, well, Uncle Joe is this, Uncle Joe is that. But then I go into the party and I have three drinks and like two desserts and I just start picking a fight or like I can't let it go. You know what I mean? Because part of it is like, how do you want to behave? So if you say like, this is going to be a tough situation, I think I'm not going to drink because it's harder to behave yourself when you drink. That's part of what's fun about drinking is it lowers inhibitions. And you could say to yourself, is this going to be more or less fun if I have lower inhibitions? You can't control what Uncle Joe does. You can't tell him not to drink, but you can decide for yourself. You can also like, if there's somebody that you know, it's just like going to be really bad. You can really just sit at the other end of the dining room table. You don't try not to engage with that person if it's possible. You could set limits. So part of it is like, okay, we have to leave after two hours because sometimes things like are okay for a while, but then as time wears on, things begin to build up. Little poke, poke, pokes become worse. Um, and you lose your temper finally, or, or, or it just, you know, it kind of escalates. So that's another thing. You can just like try to avoid certain subjects and just say like, we're not going to talk about this. We're going to agree to disagree and just talk about other things. Um, sometimes people will go along with that because they're just like, the point of this is family togetherness. And if everybody's just shouting at each other, it's not great. Sometimes you can move this, like if you have somebody who's really, really going to just acts terribly, maybe you want to try to see if you could do it at a restaurant or in a public place because people often behave themselves better in public. If it's somebody who's really 
you know, it's really not good. One thing to think about too is sometimes we play a part in these things that we're not aware of. So one thing that often happens at family gatherings is you might ask a question really kind of absentmindedly and not thinking about how it might someone off. So if you say something like, oh, now did you get a job yet? Or, oh, what happened to that boyfriend? I thought you were going to bring him. Weren't you guys going to get married? Or how's your PhD thesis going? Or, you know, oh, you know, are you applying to college? Like, is your divorce final? Oh, you're drinking again. I thought you quit drinking. Oh, can you afford that? I, I'm surprised. I mean, there's a lot of things that people say, not even trying to be a jerk, just kind of trying to idly make conversation without realizing that they're going to completely set someone off. Right. The so sensitivity you, around those things can yes, be so slight, un, unexpected, either on yeah. the giving end or the receiving end of well, it. Well, and so you feel like someone's flying off the handle at you, but what you don't think is like, should you really be saying to someone like, when are you two going to get married and start a family? Like that for someone could be like, you just jabbed a red hot knife into my heart on purpose. And you're just like, you don't know what else to say. You could just have easily said like, oh, did you see the stars born? I mean, you know, <laughs> so think about it. Think about like, okay, what are some things that I could talk about that I think are going to be, pre- oh, I saw on Facebook that you took a cool trip to Italy. Lead with that, you know, rather than things that could potentially be sensitive because, um, or, oh, I heard about this new form of gastric bypass. You know, it's like, okay, there's so many reasons why that's making me unhappy that you asked that, you know. So I think sometimes we play a bigger part in people's bad behavior than we realize because it's not meant to be badly intentioned. So we don't realize how we could be coming across. So I guess the bottom line is think about yourself. You can't control the way other people behave, but you can think about how you behave and you can also try to control circumstances. Like maybe if dinner is a problem because people drinking, often that can be really accelerate bad things. Maybe you want to say like, oh, let's start doing brunch. It would be fun to have a holiday brunch. Maybe we'll do that. And then people might still drink, but they might drink less or they might have had less to drink over the... I mentioned drinking just because with my audience, this is something that comes up quite often is like, because it often just exacerbates things that are kind of are under the surface, but maybe wouldn't erupt. But then they do because that just sort of makes it easier for things to come out that people might otherwise have the control to manage better. Right. And I love the idea of recognizing that we do have an impact on the conversation and the direction. And in the Happiness Project, you mentioned this idea of using small gestures to shift the tone of the relationship. And that can be so powerful, you know, like giving them a hug or making eye contact and congratulating them on something small from the course of the year and just really taking a negative interaction and fling it and moving in a whole different direction. Yeah. Or like having a little piece of news like, oh, I saw your favorite band was just playing. Or I mean, just something showing like, I'm thinking of you, you're in my mind in a positive way. And here's another thing. Since the Happiness Project came out, my family has got a dog. Alyssa and I had a dog growing up, but we just got a dog a couple of years ago. And that is a great, like having a dog. I mean, I don't know what you do if you don't have a dog. You can't get a dog just to make Thanksgiving dinner easier. But little kids and dogs do make it easier because they're just sort of goofy and fun. And if nothing else, you just talk about them or like have them do something funny. And so that's one thing that is good to think about is like, is there, if you're thinking about, well, should we do it at my house or my sister's house? And you're like, oh, my sister has that like great like those three dogs that are so fun. It's like, well, maybe that will help break tension too because it gives somebody things people to focus on and like, I brought a present for your dog. And oh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes yeah, absolutely. I think, help. 
Right. And I think I also don't know how people live without dogs because then they have to sweep their kitchen floor a whole lot more when they have it. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my dog is on an extended vacation to my parents' house. We're getting ready to go on vacation. And she always goes to stay with my parents. They have joint custody. And, oh, um, fun. <laughs> she loves it there. But you're right. I think that that is, it just little things like that can bring yeah. welcome distractions and they can help be the key component that shifts the mood. Or like a board game. I mean, as goofy as it sounds, like it gives people something, a way to engage where they're not, you know, where it's more directed, you know, because again, it's take control of it. What could you do to change it up? How's it gone wrong in the past? How could you change it so it wouldn't, uh, won't go bad? With my audience, I talked to them a lot about using this concept called expansion and contraction with kids, especially siblings. Like when they're contracting and they're spending a lot of time on top of each other in a small space working together in something close, they need time to expand and go outside and run and separate. And Mm -hmm. they have to alternate back and forth between these two elements all the time. Otherwise, they'll drive each other crazy and get on top Mm -hmm. of each other. And using that even in adult relationships, how do you, you're spending a lot of time in close quarters, making some breathing room and then coming back together and switching back and forth between that. And that can be really powerful. Well, one good thing, because at my Christmas, we're all sort of on top of each other and we love it. But one thing I've noticed, my husband does honestly love grocery stores. He's just like one of these people who just loves going to the grocery store. I don't Mine really does understand. too. I don't get it yeah. either. <laughs> but, and also we live in New York City, so the grocery stores are kind of like cramped and small. And in Kansas City, where my parents live, they're like huge with these bought aisles and just like every kind of tomato sauce invented, you know, like just giant. And one thing I've noticed is my husband just always will like run to the store. Oh, you need some this. I'll go run to the store. And he just, and I think for him, it's like, it's a helpful, it's super nice because everybody's like, oh, Jamie doesn't mind going to the store. He'll run and get a carton of eggs if we need them. But then it's like, he just like gets in the car. We don't get to drive much in New York City, like driving. Get in the car, go to the grocery store. He likes being there. It's a breather for him. It's a breather. Expansion, yeah. It's a constructive way to get a breather. And I think that's sometimes to like stop off and get a cup of coffee. And that's totally fine. You know, I'm like, I'm glad that he figured that out because I think you're right. Just like one of the things that I realized is like everything that's true for kids is so true for adults. Like I read about this either in The Happiness Project or Happier at Home is like treat myself like a toddler and just be like everything that's true of a toddler is true for me. I get crabby if I haven't, if I'm too hungry, I get crabby if I'm too hot or too cold. I need to get enough sleep. You know, I get overwhelmed when things are too noisy or too overwhelming. I can't be in that environment for too long. It's just like, it's so true. Or like one of the best books of all time about parenting and adult relationships is How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Great one, yes. Oh my gosh, it's like decades old. It's the most brilliant. I think about it constantly. It's such a pleasure to read because it's so funny and so lively. And everything they say about children is exactly true for adults as well. We're still, same thing. I love expanding, expansion and contraction. So true. Yeah. And I think sometimes we view it as a negative piece when we're thinking about family and extended family and this idea that we just can't stand to be in the same room for very long or like we can only spend four hours together. The reality is you can probably spend a lot more time together if you just give yourself space when you need it and you you take those small doses and you come together and you separate and then you come back together and finding that rhythm that works for you. Well, also my father said something which I thought was very, very wise, which he was saying like for seeing family he said frequency was more important than duration. It's more important to see each other frequently, even if it's just like for a day or two, than like to have longer stretches. Because like with me, like for a week at Christmas and in the summer, we go to Kansas, I take my daughters and sometimes my husband comes when he can't to Kansas City. But and sometimes I'd be like, well, is it, would it even really be worth going for just like a night or two? But then he's like, it really does. It really does help. Like sometimes when I'm on book tour, I'll go through Kansas City and I'll stay with them very briefly. And I realize 
it's just important to see people. Like even just to sit and have a leisurely dinner, everything doesn't have to be like a giant thing, especially if it's really a hassle to like make time like that or it doesn't work very well. Feel like you could just go for a day and a night and then yeah. leave the next day. And, and having those frequent touch points yes. that really keeps us connected. And you talk about yes. how you and your sister and your dad do these. Is it weekly emails where you touch oh, base? And my mom too. It's my mom's too? idea. Yeah, we talk about this on the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. It's one of the ideas that people respond to the most. And it's so simple. Talk about simple, concrete things you can do. So it's called update. And so my mother had pointed out to Elizabeth and me and my father, like that, and this is so true. People often say this that when you see people often, you have so much to tell them. But when you see them rarely, it's like, how are you? I am fine. How are you? I am also fine. And you have nothing to talk about. So she said, we should just send each other updates of just like what's going on in our lives. So now we do this, I would say every five to 10 to 15 days, we will send an email to the three of us. So it's my parents and my sister and me, so my nuclear family. And if the subject line is update. And the motto of update is it's okay to be boring. And it's literally the most boring thing. My mother will write things like, I'm going to get my hair colored. I'll be like, oh, my book group is meeting tonight. And we read My Antonia by Willa Cather. I really enjoyed it. You know, I mean, it's just like the basics by father. Foods open down the street, and we're very interested to see what you know. So like, right. okay. And it's not conversational, though. It's not conversational. It's not witty. It's not something that you craft, and usually nobody answers. So there's no work that comes from it. It's just an update. But what you find is that we feel so much more connected to each other because we know these little things that are going on. And then when we see each other, it's like, oh, yeah, how was that? Or, oh, yeah, what are uh, that was interesting. Or, like, I just have a sense of like what's going on with everybody. And what the rhythm of their life is like. Like my sister lives in Los Angeles. Her life is so different from mine in a lot of ways. It's just interesting for me to hear like what she's up to, you know, just like the real nuts and bolts of it. Uh, And my parents too. It's just like, I I like the little updates from Kansas City. Like, oh, this little store closed. And now this, you know, what's happening? If you're from Kansas City, you know, we all follow halls. What's happening with halls? (laughs) Halls is on the plaza. Halls is at Crown Center. How is halls at Crown Center doing? It's like, we all talk about it. It just makes us all feel connected. And it takes like a minute. And it creates no work, no expectations. And it just, it just keeps, and I've heard of like siblings doing it through group text. I've heard of like college friends having private Facebook groups. There's a million different ways you can do it. But it's the idea of that constant low level connection is really, really helpful and not that hard. And it really does dramatically make you feel more connected to people. And now I like just texting with my daughter in college. Like I just sent, like I'll just send her a picture of my dog and there's nothing on it. It's just like, here's a picture of your dog. That's all it takes. Just a smile for the day. Yeah. And she sends me a picture of a dog she sees on the street. She's obsessed with dogs. I'm like, there she is playing with a dog on the street. You know, it's cute. And it just doesn't take much to feel connected. I love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today, Gretchen. This has been really fun. I feel like we could talk all day. It's like we're interested in so many of the same things. Absolutely. And I'd love, do you have any any other resources? I'm going to put the links to your book. Um, You have a course as well, don't you? Yes. In January, I'm launching the Happiness Project Experience. It's a video course. So if you've tried in the past to do a happiness project, but like you got stuck or you want to sort of be guided through it, this is the Happiness Project. It's going to be really fun. I've never done that before. And I also have a Four Tendencies course for people who want to go deeper into the Four Tendencies and like really get into some of the nuances. Like there's interviews with people who are different tendencies so you can hear their perspective on it and like how they've tackled certain kind of issues. And then on my website, there's tons of resources related to everything, GretchenRubin.com. 
Oh, and the video is that the years are short. Oh, yes. I'll put the link. I love that video. Yeah, that's, I know that's fun. And then I have my podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where we talk every week about how to be happier. (laughs) So a lot of these kinds of ideas come up over and over. Awesome. Well, I'll put all those links in the show notes so everyone can reach out to the piece that speaks to them the most and connect with you. And you do Facebook live videos as well too. I love those. Yes. Usually they're Monday at 4 p.m. Those sometimes like with the holidays, they start moving around, but you can see that on the events tab in my Facebook thing. Yeah. And so it's like live engagement. So if there's ever anything you want to talk about or ask about, that's I love connecting with people on Facebook. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I hope your holidays are truly happier this year. Yes, you too. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gretchen. Have a great day. You too. 